Welcome to the Fort Lauderdale Primary Purpose Big Book Study Group's Thursday Night Alcoholics and God Speaker Step Series. Uh, we're going to have Joey come up and tell a joke. All right. Uh, so, <clears throat> this is an oldie but a goodie, I like to say. A man walks into a bar. As he sits down, he looks up and notices three pieces of meat hanging from the ceiling. He asks the bartender, what's with the meat? The bartender says, if you can jump up and slap all three pieces of meat at once, you get free drinks for an hour. Even if you miss one, you pay for everyone else's drinks for the rest of the night. Want to give it a go? The man takes another look at the meat and says, I think I'll pass. The stakes are too high. (laughs) Thank you. They get better and better every week. (laughs) Uh, Thanks for joining us tonight. In a minute, we're going to start our two-minute meditation. Uh, So please take a moment to get situated. Please turn off all devices that make noise or that might or will distract others. Uh, Take this time to get connected to God. Let the craziness, craziness of the day drift away. And ask God to help you stay focused on the step study tonight. Uh, So if everybody's ready, uh, we're going to start the meditation.
All right, so uh, we're going to do the fog light prayer. Um, if you don't know it, it should be coming up on the screens uh, here, or it's right here, actually. Um, all right, God, let your love shine through me like a fog light, so those who are lost, sick, and dying can find your love through me. Amen. Awesome. Uh, there is a solution from the big book, page 17. The tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. We have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news that this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. I've asked Alex to read Appendix 2, Spiritual Experience. We read this because the main purpose of the 12 steps is to have one, so it's kind of important to know what one is. Uh, So Alex, if you want to come up and read. Spiritual experience. The term spiritual experience and spiritual awakening are used many times in this book, which, upon careful reading, shows that the personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism has manifested itself among us in many different forms. Yet it is true that our first printing gave many readers the impression that these personality changes or religious experiences must be in the nature of sudden and spectacular upheavals. Happily for everyone, this conclusion is erroneous. In the first few chapters, a number of sudden revolutionary changes are described. Though it was not our intention to create such an impression, many alcoholics have nevertheless concluded that in order to recover, they must acquire an immediate and overwhelming God-consciousness, followed at once by a vast change in feeling and outlook. Among our rapidly growing membership of thousands of alcoholics, such transformations, though frequent, are by no means the rule. Most of our experiences are what psychologist William James calls the educational variety because they develop slowly over a period of time. Quite often, friends of the newcomer are aware of the difference long before he is himself. He finally realizes that he has undergone a profound alteration in his reaction to life, that such a change could hardly have been brought about by himself alone. What often takes place in a few months could seldom have been accomplished by years of self-discipline. With few exceptions, our members find that they have tapped an unsuspected inner resource which they presently identify with their own conception of a power greater than themselves. Most of us think this awareness of a power greater than ourselves is the essence of a spiritual experience. Our more religious members call it God consciousness. Most emphatically, we wish to say that any alcoholic capable of honestly facing his problems in the light of our experience can recover provided he does not close his mind to all spiritual concepts. He can only be defeated by an attitude of intolerance or belligerent denial. We find that no one need have difficulty with the spirituality of the program. Willingness, honesty, and open-mindedness are the essentials of recovery, but these are indispensable. There is a principle which is a bar against all information, which is proof against all arguments, which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance. That principle is contempt prior to investigation, Herbert Spencer. All right. Uh, Please refrain from disturbing others by talking or constantly getting up and sitting back down. This is a tech-free meeting, so if you have a phone, just turn it off um, or at least set it to, to silent. Um, and tonight we've got Marion doing a guest uh, speaker session for us. 
Um, it's been, what, about two years since we've had you up on this stage at least. Um, you know, when, when we were saying the prayer earlier, um, Marion is someone who, like, I see this prayer in action. Um, so I'm just really looking forward to get you up here and hear what you have to say. So welcome, Marion. Is it on? Ooh, baby. Are we good now? Okay. I'm Marion. I'm alcoholic. Oh, it's great to be here tonight, and it's great to have another day of sobriety, and it's great to see um, a lot of familiar faces and new faces, and um, I want to welcome anyone who's new to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I got a new girl over here. Yes, God put her in my life, and that whole new row of enthusiasm and um, I, I've been so emotional about this. It's like old home night, you know? Um, so I have no idea what God's put in my mouth and put in my heart to say tonight. It's going to be your guess as good as mine, what's going to come out. So um, I do know um, my home group is just for now. Um, Boca Raton, Florida. My sobriety date is November 11th, 1989. I have a sponsor and I sponsor women and I'm living in all three sides of the triangle and Alcoholics Anonymous, safe and protected. And um, that's the great, great place to be. And especially if you're new, just jump in the middle. And I've seen some of these youngins doing that and um, so many great relationships here. I know I'm going to talk about what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. I'm going to go into that, but I just think of the last two years since I've, I've been up here and, um, and the things that we've gone through, um, where I am currently, what I've learned since the last time I stood back here. And... Um, and there's two things that have really rung true in my life and that have been just really so freeing for me. And those two things, one comes from my friend Maribeth. And she says, and this is how she talks, well, you know, Marion, she has this calm, calming voice. On one side of our medallion, Marion, it has how many years we've been sober. And on the other side of the medallion, it says, to thine own self be true. And, um, and what I've learned in that in the last journey of the last two years with COVID and meetings shutting down and, and things like, and turning 61 with a grandson that's going to be 19 years old at the end of this month. And, um, and learning to be comfortable in my skin, I think more the older I get, that it's okay to be wise and to have cellulite. And it's okay to have wrinkles and, and, a, and a comfortability in my own skin. Because the deal is, is that God made me. God made all of us. And people who get around me, I'm telling you, my, my deal in life is to build you up and connect you to God. And, and thank you for saying that, Ryan. What an incredible compliment that is. I want 
God's light to shine through me. I want that to be who I am. But my struggle as a little girl and my, and really even through years and years of sobriety and turning 61, who's 61, you know, whatever, you know, that I'm, I'm Marion. You know, and, and that comparison and that trying to be something I'm not and, oh, if I only had just a little more of this or a little more of that or whatever, but just really learning that to thine own self be true. And also the freedom that also comes from my other, and these are those little wall sayings that you see in any AA meeting. And the other one is live and let live. Live and let live. And for me, you know, I want to, as an alcoholic, I want to manage, I want to control, I want you, you know, I want to argue and I want to, oh, you're doing it this way or, and you should be doing it that way with sponsees or, or any of those things in life. And, um, and I find that when I have had a, a spiritual experience sufficient enough to overcome alcoholism. That's not just alcoholism in a bottle. That's alcoholism in my selfishness and self-centeredness. That's alcoholism in my being an actor trying to direct the show. That's my selfishness being, or that's my a hundred forms of fear. That's all that stuff it talks about in the book. The restless, the irritable, the discontent. A spiritual experience to overcome alcoholism. Alcoholism at first comes in a bottle and yeehaw, you know, hey, I remember the early days of sobriety and when I go to bed at the end of the night and I would, there was times I would just put the pillow over my head and go, don't drink, don't drink, don't drink. I didn't drink. And how fabulous that was. That I didn't have to wake up in the morning with the hideous four horsemen. I didn't have to come to in the morning. And I didn't have to make a bunch of phone calls and say, what, what kind of a donkey was I last night? You know, I, I don't have to do that stuff. And I, and I can do that same stuff in recovery. Where I can just, you know, be like the alcoholic, like the tornado coming out of the basement, ain't a grand the wind stop blowing, you know, because I'm, I'm full of fear if things aren't the way I want them to be. But the, with that live and let live, you know, I learned that through, you know, I really took that to heart and a, a lot of, you know, we, we've all, since the last two years of, of being here, there was some, some relationships in this room. There were some relationships and extensions from this room now that we all, we all kind of went to our corners and, and healed and, and, and spit and clawed and whatever it was. And then God, you know, there's another piece, another piece that goes with that is that in the certain trials and low spots, that I've, I've had in my life in the last couple of years. I mean, Pete and I didn't know we were going to be still living in South Florida. We were losing our business. It was right before COVID. We, we were as broke as broke could be. And we didn't know whether we were moving to Minnesota to work or whether to take the apartment we're in now. We didn't know where we were going. And if you, you're facing something like that at 
59, 60 years old, that's kind of a scary place to be. You know, financial stuff has never been our, hey, yeah, we got the Bentley. You know, it's never been us. And, and walking our th- friend Mike through, you know, him running out of his hat with, house with this cat in his hands, with this house on fire. And that's, you know, these are the things we do in Alcoholics Anonymous, hold each other's hand through these low spots. And I can tell you that even in those hard times, I can look back today and even some of the stuff, the trials and things that, you know, that Pete's gone through and he's got a whole new sponsor and I'm just being real. I'm just being me and I'm giving you what God's given me. But you know, that some of the the hardest spots I've gone through in my life that I can actually, when you do this work and you grow in understanding and effectiveness and you seek God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, we can actually look back on them and say, thank you. Thank you for the thank you for those things that have brought me closer to you, God, because that's what this whole journey is going to be about, guys. It's always going to be about what's my relationship with God. And God will do these things that feels like that are that are just designed to bring me closer to him anyway. To lean my lean onto his shoulder, to lean onto you know my ear to his voice. That to get my attention about something. Because it's always going to be about living in the four absolutes. And purity and honesty and unselfishness and love. Purity, honesty, unselfishness and love. The pull of our program, Paul, right? You know, what's pulling me? I am either pulling towards that relationship with God or I'm going the other direction. And and it, and it started out so innocently innocently that those those when I went to treatment in 1989 one of the first things I learned about a relationship with God is look for the coincidences is God God doing things and and remaining anonymous and I would just become so grateful for just those sweet little innocent things that just kept happening like I couldn't believe that this little girl from 2221 Lincoln Street in Bellingham, Washington with a dirty face and dirty clothes and alcoholism and and no food in the fridge and mom and dad drinking and fighting and throwing things around and craziness like that, that I could find this relationship with God that I have today. But it was all innocent. Who I was at the beginning is is not who I am today and probably not and isn't who I was two years ago but it's who I am today and who I am today I was telling James I don't know what I'm gonna wear I'm packing I'm going to a conference this weekend I I'm I'm bat poop crazy and I'm running around and I'm an alcoholic and we never overcome that stuff right guys so we can look at elders at 31 years sober or 10 years sober or five years sober there might be a time where I'm sitting in a meeting where you know I have a girl that I'm just telling her girl it's only one day at a time you know it's just one day at a time that we have to do this thing that we get to do this thing and um and i can tell you that being back together and being back here at alcoholics and god you know there was a group this group started in a church 
maybe three miles away from here. And I love that place. This place is good too, but that place was cool. We had a little coffee room as you came in and we had the red tablecloths and these, and, 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 and Mike, you know, I just love you. You're my friend. And, you know, there was just a, um, there was a, there was one drunk working with another all the time. Just a drunk working with another all the time. So now I think I'll go into my story. Um, so I was um, born and raised in Bellingham, Washington. Um, one of six kids, three boys and three girls. We had a, my, my mom adopted another kid because she couldn't even feed us, but she adopted another one. And, um, and underneath all of that, like I carried for years and years and years how awful and how shameful that that was to be in that family. Like kids didn't come to our house and we were so ashamed of what, you never knew what you were going to walk into when you walked in the door. And, um, and I can tell you looking back today, I would never, I wouldn't change my childhood for anything in the world. Just by the thought of my mom adopting another kid when she can't even feed the six she's got tells me there was love in that house and there was love in that house. And, and so the way that that looks today is I have a job I do, which is an open house to people. Come on in. I've always been that way in my life. I adopted that from my mom. Just throw another pot in the stove or whatever, it, or another potato in the pot or whatever it is. And, um, and so our house was, even though... You know, there's alcoholism, there's three boys, three girls, the adopted brother. There, you never know what you're going to come home to. I knew there was love. You know, I'd go to school and my teacher would wash my face and comb my hair. And I'd go to school and that's where I learned to be, you know, to try to be the good kid. To always, you know, honor my mom and dad, honor my teacher, get good grades. So Because there was trouble. There was always like trouble in my house. You know, and my brothers and sisters would be like, you know, I have a brother that went to like eight treatment centers. I, you know, alcoholism runs rapid in my family. And I can tell you that fast forward too, because I forget this usually at the end of the talk, is that my little sister has 32 years sobriety. I have 31 years of sobriety. My brother, Eric, that lived under a bridge that was a heroin addict has 30 years of sobriety. My sister, Marlene, has 29. And I have a brother that has about maybe nine or 10 years now. And um, so alcoholism runs rampant. And also I say that because I forget it and I'm a little nervous. So I'm kind of, I don't know. Um, So I just wanted to say that up front that um, if you have family members you're praying for and that you want to get sober, that is possible for them. It's possible. So, um, fast forward, I'm 15 years old. I go to a high school dance. I went to the store before that and I ripped up off a bottle of MD 2020. They were flat bottles and it was this really cheap wine. And I put it in my jacket and I went to this high school dance and I um, went into, it was such a beautiful social drink that I went into the can and I opened the door and I took my first drink of MD 2020 and threw up in the toilet, 
took the next drink and I was off to the races. And I was a party girl in high school. You know, our big book talks about I had found a panacea for my ills. I'm an alcoholic and I am off to the races. Alcohol was my solution. And it worked until it no longer worked again. But I was the girl, I didn't have a car in school. I was always borrowing at somebody else's car. There was always a keg in the back of the car. Where's the party? Marion's the gal. Just get with her, you know? And we'd have keggers in the back of whoever's car it was. I'd call my girlfriends and they'd never know what car I was going to show up in. And, um, and so that's what I did. That's what I did through high school. It, it led to being a high school dropout, but still going to my senior prom, it meant, um, where's the party, Marion? That's how I stayed connected to my senior class, was just always throwing the party. And, um, and um, so I'm drinking through high school. I drop out of school, and I'm, I'm out on, on the Guide Meridian in Bellingham, Washington, and I go to this party, and there's this guy across the room. And, you know, I was always the one trying to fix my dad. I had to fix my dad all the time. And he was angry. And my mom used to say, you know, I love it when it's the end of the month because dad doesn't have any money and then he's drinking beer. But at the beginning of the month, he's drinking whiskey and that's dad's mean juice, you know. And, um, And so I'm at this party and this guy across the room, I'm 19 years old. I look at him and he's got no shirt on and he's got the 80s flare corduroys and no shirt on and his curly hair and he's just like hot and like buff and he's in the middle of this fight and I'm like I look across the room and it's like it was love at first sight and what I realize about that today why that was love at first sight was because this is the guy I'm gonna fix you know it was just like my dad so I, I, I get pregnant. My dad's in Alaska. He's, you know, my dad was a laborer in construction. He was a fisherman in Alaska. And on the weekend, he'd drive cab to provide for us kids. See, I didn't understand. You know, my sponsor always says this, that if you want to know, the first time she meets with us, she says, um, before you talk about you, tell me about your mom and dad. You know, when my dad lost his father when he was eight years old, his mom raised nine kids by herself. And all my dad knew to do was just to go to work. He was chopping wood and carrying water before it was cool. You know, we had a wood-burning stove. And, you know, I knew this is going to make me sound old, but damn it, I'm embracing the old. Sorry, I said damn it. Um, In the morning, we'd get up to go to school, and there'd be, um, you know, seven kids. And so we, could, didn't ha- so we got to have hot lunch. It would be 35 cents for each of us. And Dad would have 35 cents just lined up on the counter because he went cab driving, and he, that was his tips. And that's how we got to have hot lunch. See, that's how my dad showed love. My dad showed love by working and by working really hard to keep the lights on, to keep the water running, to keep lunch money on the table. But the rest of it, like as far as being emotionally there for us and things like that, you know, wasn't happening. My mom was born and raised in Alaska and she came from some, some really tough times in her life. You know, she was abused by her own father, not in a good way, you know. 
And, and I believe my dad went up in those tugboats up in Alaska and he saved my mom. He just swooped her up and he brought her, he brought her to Bellingham. And, um, and I'm proud of that today. You know, I'm, I'm Marion the third in my family. I have a great aunt Marion. My mom's name is Marion and my name is Marion. And, um, and I used to be so ashamed of that. I used to be so ashamed to have her name. You know, somebody would call and they'd say, hey, is Mary in there? And, and they go, big or little, big or little. And I used to hate that. And today I couldn't be more proud than to be Marion's daughter. I couldn't. Because she had a rough life and dad had a rough life. And so when, you know, when we go through the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and when we get good teachers and we get, you know, we, we get a little outside help in some issues and, and things like that. My God, we can look back on those relationships and go, you know, that was who my mom was. She did the best she could. This is who my dad was. He did the best he could. So I see this guy at a party. He's no shirt on. I'm drunk. He's drunk. And I end up getting pregnant, you know, back in 1979, that's a pretty big deal. It's not like everybody's just getting pregnant and getting married back then. And my dad didn't like him. Well, living life forward, like everybody says, living life forward and understanding it backwards. I understand why now, you know, because he wasn't treating his daughter right, you know. So we get busy and we, I I get pregnant with Brandon. I have Brandon on Christmas 1979 and... A little over a year later, I had Jacob. And then a little over a year later, again, I had Jessica. And I am a full-blown alcoholic housewife and every other forms of alcohol to go with that. And when my little girl turned four years old, I got pregnant again for the fourth time. And it was really exciting because with the other three kids, it was like bottles and diapers and bottles and diapers and bottles and diapers, you know? And our whole family was so excited that, okay, we're going to have another baby, you know? And I took good, pretty good care of myself in that pregnancy. I think I only drank a little, maybe some, you know, I don't know, um, a long time ago now. And they didn't talk about it even being bad for you back then. I don't even know what the deal was. You guys have probably had a mother, if you're as old as me, in this room that may have had. I have a picture of my mom sitting with her best friend. She's like, it's July of 19... 59 and she's got a beer and a cigarette in her hand and she's got the big old belt and you know it's just like it's crazy I think I was I know I was predestined for this stuff so um so anyway I get pregnant with this fourth child and on October um 19th 1986 I gave birth to our fourth child his name was Brian Daniel and um and I, I just three months later I just uh had maternity leave I was working at a little grocery store and three months later, um, I go back to work. And on January 22nd, 1987, he was three months and three days old. My little sister was babysitting him. And she went into the bedroom to pick Brian up to bring him out to me. And he was purple. And she come running out of the bedroom with him in her arms. And she's like, what's wrong? What's wrong? And I said, give him mouth to mouth. Give him mouth to mouth. And the hospital was right around the corner and we ran down to the car and ran up to the hospital and I walked into the hospital with my baby in my arms and I handed him to the nurse and the, and the woman said, your baby's dead. 
And um, my son had died of crib death that day, January 22nd, 1987. And um, there was this man I ended up doing my fifth step with years later. Not very long later, but a few years later. And he was this, one of my heroes still today. His name was Ron Slater. See, God, God had my number then, you know. And um, there was this man named Ron Slater, and he was one of the most godly men I ever met who never pushed God down my throat, but he just happened to be in the hospital that day. And I turned around the corner, and he was standing right there. It's like, how did you know? And he held my hand and walked me through the most darkest time of my life. I'm 27 years old. My child dies, and I've got three other kids to take care of. And later that same year, in August, Um, my mom had lung cancer, my mom had emphysema, and my mom ended up dying in August of 1987. So I lose my son in January, and I lose my mom in August. And uh, it was so dark, you guys. It's like, you know, when we say this stuff out loud, sometimes it almost makes you just go, oh my God, I can't believe that was my life. And, um, And where our book talks about that it's so dark before the dawn. And it was so dark. My life was so dark. I couldn't put enough alcohol and drugs in my body. I could not. There was not enough to kill the pain that I was in. And all I thought was, you know, I couldn't take care of these kids. I'm in Washington, and it's dark and ugly anyway at times. Love it with my whole heart, but it can be rainy. I don't know if you've ever heard that about the Seattle area, but it kind of is like that. But what was dark was what was happening in my soul and inside of me. And... um. And um, I went, I went to see a shrink because I really thought I was just going crazy. And um, and I got to this woman, and and I always talk about this, like you know, the ominous warning that Bill talks about on the, you know, the Hampshire grenadier that's on the on the headstone in 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 England, you know. And the ominous warning that this woman gave me that day was, um, Marion, when you lose a child, you lose your future. And when you lose a parent, you lose your past. And you're having trouble living in today. And I'd like to say that, oh my God, that pointed right to Alcoholics Anonymous. But I know that today, that that did. That was one of the pointers out. And, um, you know, I started sending my kids off on this little Baptist Sunday school bus because they were, they would pick them up at nine o'clock in the morning on Sunday morning, and then they would um, drop them off at one o'clock in the afternoon. So if you are an alcoholic mom, that's some pretty nice free babysitting for a Sunday morning. And, um, and so that works really nice for (laughs) Thank you. My old home group, the Northwest Group of Alcoholics Anonymous. It was my home group for 20 years. And I used to have this thing where I always cried when I shared. And um, whether it was gratitude or whether it was sadness or whether it was fear or whatever. So as soon as I opened my mouth, I'd say, I'm marrying I'm an alcoholic. They just throw the Kleenex box to me. <laughs> this group is used to that. Um, so... Anyhow, I can't get enough booze in my body. My baby's died. My husband is off the chain. 
I am alone. I'm sending my kids off on this Sunday school bus on Sunday mornings. And it just so happens, it was like it was coming up to October and they were going to do this harvest festival at the, you know, you guys will have your own belief in God. That's a beautiful thing about Alcoholics Anonymous. This is how I came to God for me. And um, I'd send them off on that little Sunday school bus and and it was October and they were going to do this little harvest festival, a little trunk or treat like Ryan and Mike Chase do and around here. And, um, and they said, mom, we want you to come. Will you come? We're going to be singing. And I was like, all right. So I said, yes, for some reason. So I went to this thing. I went to this thing and I heard the kids and the next day, the pastor of that church called and he said, do you mind if we come over me and my wife, Mary, can we come over and talk to you? And I was like, yeah, sure. You can come over. Why am I saying yes to this stuff? <laughs> like, seriously, like, why was I saying, oh yeah, Sunday school bus. Sure. Yeah. Come on over, go to the harvest festival, whatever. This is the God I've learned to grow and understand in love is that our big book says God does not make too hard of terms for those who seek him. And I was seeking and I was broken and I was praying to whatever that God was, you know. And um, so they came over to my house and little Mary went up. Can I go upstairs and play with the kids? I have a drunken home. Yeah, sure. Go upstairs. You know, God, who knows what that looked like. But what happened that day was one of my first born-again experiences. On October 18th, 1988, I gave my life over to this God of that I didn't understand at the time. And I drank, and I drank, and I drank after that. And I put other forms of alcohol in my body, and I would wake up with those hideous four horsemen, and I would run to this preacher and I would just be like oh my god why can't I get sober why can't I get sober keep praying keep praying keep praying keep praying and I did I was I was one of those alcoholics like I could admit it I'm powerless over alcohol and make direct amends you know I was doing that all the time I'd be like oh my god what did I do last night you know where it says you know ain't a grand the wind stopped blowing and I'd be like hey guess what I mean calling everybody I'm really sorry for what a jerk I was last night but I'm sober now and I'm going to stay sober the rest of my life you know that's how I approached it you know and um I would do it over and over and over and over again and um and so November, 3rd, November 10th, 1989, the day before my sobriety, my first day sober, was my 30th birthday. And I had one of those bad 80s perms, and I hadn't picked it out, so it looked more like Bob Marley. It was really matted. And, and I had my husband's boxer shorts on and a hoodie and some Birkenstocks. And, you know, I came to that morning the day after my 30th, well, first, the day of my 30th birthday. I went to Denny's, drank Bloody Mary's for breakfast at 7-something in the morning. I still, to this day, I've thought about this when I tell my story. I have no idea who I drank with. And I may very well be alone. I don't know. I have no idea who I was with. Went home, kids were at school, passed out, got up and did it again that night in a leopard print shirt and my crazy matted hair. 
And that night, man, I put so many forms of alcohol in my body and I don't remember even catching a buzz. Like some people talk about we drink ourselves sober, perhaps. So November 11th, 1989, I get up the day after my 30th birthday. I go down to my bright pink bathroom in Bellingham, Washington. And I look in the mirror and I saw something I hadn't ever seen before. My next door neighbor, Daryl Hirschkorn, had gone to treatment six months before that. He had problems sticking stuff up his nose that's white. And, um, and somehow that just stuck in my head, you know. I looked in the mirror and I thought, I'm going to go to treatment. Thought it never come before. Not that I know of, you know. And here's the thing about God, guys. And this is what makes me cry too because it's like, what's the difference between November 10th, 1989 and November 11th, 1989? You remember the last day you used, the last day you drank, and the next day? You know, our book talks about um, sudden um, emotions, attitudes are suddenly cast aside for a whole new set. And I'm dumbing it down a little bit, Marian style, but not dumb. I'm brilliant. Something happened between that day and the next day because I stand here today, 30 days in a treatment center, 31 years later, November 10th, November 11th, what happened in between that? You guys, that's the thing, this phenomena, this thing that happens for us the day before sobriety and the day that is. I haven't met, a, haven't met an alcoholic who can tell me what happened. It wasn't because, oh, Marion got her crap together on November 11th. Oh, she really did the right thing. You know, my, my, my ex-husband looked at me, oh, sure, now you want to go to treatment, you know. I could write a whole book on here are the methods we tried. I would take this vitamin called hangover helper. I would drink, you know, switch from scotch to brandy, switch from MD 2020 to any flavor of beer out there. I was always trying. The great obsession of every alcoholic is that he can control his drinking. And I was obsessed with it. How do I do this right? So I, so I had the boxer shorts on, right? I have the hoodie on. I have the matted hair going on. I tell my husband I'm going to go to treatment. He says, there's green stuff to smoke. There's beer in the fridge. You're out of your mind. And I said, I need to go. I used to tell him my story all the time that my big, that my big sister just showed up and took me. And I was telling her this, you know, she's in Washington. And she says, Marion, you called me. <laughs> so I have to change that part. I called her, I guess. And so I called her and she picked me up and she took me and apparently you go to treatment and you do an intake and you, you know, make these phone calls, but I didn't, I just showed up. And what happened that day was I did an intake and I did a, you know, I told them the truth about my alcoholism and they diagnosed me a a late second stage chronic alcoholic. You know, there's a few times I tried to leave that treatment center and I'm going to tell you what happened. I had this God of my understanding. I'm laying in detox and it's the third day. And I'm ready to leave. And there was this counselor named Steve Nobles. He was like six foot, a hundred. And this nurse Becky that came in the room.
and they sat at the end of the bed and she was a nurse and she didn't talk to me about the medical part of this disease and Steve was the kindest, sweetest, most gentle spirit I've ever met in my entire life and he was a therapist and he didn't talk about that see they were two members of Alcoholics Anonymous and I, they spoke my language our book talks about they spoke my language the words had depth and weight I understood them they were just like me you know just like we do with each other you know I was talking to I'm going to say in a general way who this person is you know we can talk about the big book which is our bible which is like Karen C says is our love story from God most powerful thing we have is our stories. My hero, that God that I worship, that God that I call here was the greatest storyteller in my, in my thinking of all time. You know, we don't talk from some spiritual hilltop or, oh, well, why don't you just do it like me? No, this is what happened for me. And that's what they did. And I don't know what they said. I just know how it made me feel that I was free and I was hearing the language of the heart for the first time in my life and I was home. I was home. I worked those first three steps um, in, in treatment. You know, the first one was, the first step was, you know, admitting my powerlessness over alcohol and, and writing out how much money I said. It was treatment center style, one, two, and three. Boom, did it. I sat on that fourth step the whole first year of my life in sobriety. I took my first commitment at that Northwest group of Alcoholics Anonymous. My friend CB, when I walked in the door, he was one of those real alcoholics with the warty nose and the flat top. You know, the real alcoholic looking nose. And he said, hi, Mary, and welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. What we get to do there, what we get to do, it's like, you know, it might not be my, you know, my old timers, my Dixie and my Hank and my Margie and, you know, all these people that are, that are going to be my heroes as long as I live. You guys will meet those too. You are meeting those too. Those people that the rest of the world might not know, but that help get us to this place of freedom from this disease that wants, it will settle for us drunk, but wants us dead. So I went to a business meeting. I got my first job. I was, I got, I, I got to clean the ashtrays. Those old metal ashtrays. I even heard this in a Zoom meeting over the last year that um, there was this group that when, when smoking quit, happening in ashtrays they, they sold the ashtrays for 25 cents i was like dang i wish we would have done that but cleaning those ashtrays washing those ashtrays and putting them in the sink and putting them out on the table man i was i was a part of something i was a part of life at last i was part of life at last and from the beginning at that home group man i would I would look up at the podium. The only time we had a podium meeting at Northwest Group was on Friday nights, was po podium meeting. And I would sit there and I would dream of 
one day when I get my first year sober. Wow, that's going to be magic. That's going to be magic. But the first one was a 30-day coin, you know. Had to wait till halftime of the meeting, go up and get that 30-day coin. See, Alcoholics Anonymous has given me a life and given me... I want... I, I love my innocent beginnings. I love our innocence beginnings. Those first times when I hear, you know, and, and, you know, stay away from that guy or get over there or do this or do that or whatever. You know, I got, I got a little too proud for myself. Later on in sobriety, I, um, I started getting a little bit churchy and... I was a worship leader at my church and I started going to Alcoholics Anonymous and tell them about my God and if they only had that God and, you know, things like that. And, but guess what was happening? I was really in untreated alcoholism. My life at home was falling apart. See, my husband never found the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous and he became more and more and more and more and more and more violent. And, um, and I'm going to this church and that's happening. And I'm just going, help me, help me, help me, help me. Pray, 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 pray. Now church is good. In addition to, never instead of. In addition to, never instead of. And, um, and the day I left that man, I called. I left the house and I'm driving my Jeep and I called my friend Marlena and she's, she, I said, what are you doing? We're having a tea party. Alcoholic women do not sit around and drink tea. Okay, it's a lot of cigarettes. It's a lot of coffee. And that's really what's happening. I left, I left, I'm out. And those women in Alcoholics Anonymous swoop me up again. They swoop me up again and they saved my life. See, this, this, this isn't about just getting sober and life gets easy and life gets perfect and life gets grand. You know, yeah, there is. Yeah, there is. It's all great. You know, just sitting and having a laugh and running into Ryan on Las Solas or sitting and having a little conversation with James or Mikey having me and Pete over for movie and burgers or whatever. You know, these are the great events that happen in my life today that I wouldn't trade for anything in the world. And I would have missed that. I could have missed that. But today, here I stand. So um, I want to read something that is reminiscent of Alcoholics and God. And I haven't read this for a long time, but God just really said, pick it up and bring it. And um, there's, this, there's this book called The Ragamuffin Gospel. And, um, and it reminds me of who, you know, see, we make, we make this relationship with God like it's got to be glow in the dark and I've got to clean up and go to God and all these things. I was listening to this thing the other day. I'm going to get sidetracked for a second, but it's really, really cool. Um, when we say our name, when you introduce yourself to someone, like in the Hebrew, when you say, like if anybody's Jewish, of the Jewish faith here, the name for God is I am. 
So this man was preaching this and I was like, yes. When we introduce ourselves to someone and say, I am Marion. I am Ryan. I am James. I am Mike Chase. We're actually putting God's name before our name. So God is going before you. Isn't that cool? Let's learn that. So this is what it talks about. It says, uh, and, and you know what? Use the words. If you want to change the words, change the words. But I think this is what we do in Alcoholics Anonymous. And it's just the introduction. It says, uh, this, uh, this book is not for super spiritual people. It's not for muscular Christians who've made John Wayne and not Jesus their hero. It's not for academicans who would imprison Jesus in the ivory tower of Edesis. It's not for noisy, feel-good folks who manipulate Christianity into a naked appeal to emotion. It's not for hooded mystics who want magic in their religion. It's not for alleluia Christians who live only on the mountaintop and have never visited the valley of desolation. It's not for the fearless or the tearless. It's not for red-hot zealous who boast with the rich young ruler of the Gospels. All these commandments I have kept from my youth. It's not for the complacent hoisting over their shoulder a tote bag, tote bag of honors and diplomas and good works, actually believing they haven't made it's not for legalists who would rather surrender control of their souls to, to rules than run the risk of living in union with God. If anyone is still reading along, the ragamuffin gospel is written for the bedraggled, the beat up, and the burnout. It's for the sorely, bur- sorely burdened who are still shifting the heavy suitcase from one hand to the other. It's for the wobbly and the weak need who know they don't have it all together and are too proud to accept the handout of amazing grace. It's for inconsistent, unsteady disciples whose cheese has fallen off their cracker. It's for the poor, the weak, sinful men and women with hereditary faults and limited talents. (laughs) It's for earthen vessels who shuffle along on feet of clay. It's for the bent and the bruised who feel that their lives are a great grave disappointment to God. It's for smart people who know they're stupid and honest disciples who admit they're scallywags. You know, Peter talks about this all the time about, you know, God uses his broken toys. God, the, you know, the, 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 the Chinese or whatever, that they have the broken pots and they fill them in with gold. And I believe that that's what God's done in my life. You know, um, I want to live this and I want to be this. Why? Because Dr. Bob talked about it. To pass on what's been freely given to me. To do it out of honor. To do it out of respect. For CB. For Margie. For Kathy. For all those people that took the time to pass it on to me. So um, 
I'm just going to end this with Bill Wilson's great line, pass it on. Love you guys so much. Thanks for having me. Let's thank Marion again. Uh, We're going to bring up James to do the secretary's report. Hi, my name. Ooh, that's loud. <laughs> Hi, my name is James, and I'm your recovered alcoholic secretary. Thank you. Are we all alive still? Uh, in keeping with the seventh tradition, which states that every group shall be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions, the baskets are now going around. If you don't have cash on you, we do have a square reader and a Venmo account you can get with Mike Chase after the meeting. Um, I have asked Catherine to read the recovered statement. We read this notice to explain why many people in this group identify as recovered rather than recovering and what it exactly means to be a recovered alcoholic. Please welcome Catherine. Alcoholic. This is the recovered statement. Recovered. We are not cured of alcoholism. Recovered, but not cured. That presents a conflict to some alcoholics. If we were cured, we would be able to drink responsibly. No, we are not cured. The allergic reaction to alcohol will remain with us for our lifetime. But we have been restored to sanity. That was the problem. The main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in the body. We are now saying where alcohol is concerned. Consequently, we have recovered. Thank you, Catherine. 1940s style Big Look sponsorship from forward to the second edition Alcoholics Anonymous. Of alcoholics who came to AA and really tried, 50% sobered up at once and remain that way. 25% sobered up after some relapses. And among the remainder, those who stayed on with AA showed improvement. What we've seen, felt, come to believe, and experience is that God has not changed over time, and neither should the sacred approach back to his loving arms. The statistics above suggest a 75-plus percent success rate. I'm going to ask for a show of hands of recovered alcoholics. Awesome. Um, Is there anyone that needs a sponsor? Please raise your hand. Anyone need a sponsor? We all have sponsors. Okay. Um, Please join us Monday night's Big Book Study Meeting where the Big Book comes alive. Fellowship is at 6.30. Big Book Study starts at 7.15. We have CDs, mugs, large print Big Books, and Little Red Book and Big Book Dictionaries for sale in the back. We meet every Thursday starting promptly at 7.15, and we ask you to be courteous at the sound of the bells. We do have a few announcements, I believe. We have the Broward County Intergroup. Um, They supply literature, medallions, conference and non-conference approved literature as well. Um, And we have the helpline there as well. Um, And then the Broward County Institutions Committee. Um, They meet at the 12th Sub House every second Saturday at 10 a.m., Those are the people that go to jails and institutions. Is there anybody here from the Broward Institutions Committee with us tonight? No? Okay. Well, you can get with them on Saturdays if you want more information. And we look forward to seeing you next week. All right. 
Um, before we go, we have a little gift for Marion. I know you probably have like 50 of these at your house. So. Um, also, uh, next Thursday, we're wrapping up our speaker, our, our guest speaker series, I guess you could call it. Uh, we have Joe D. coming to speak for us next Thursday, who, little fun fact, is actually Mike Chase's first sponsor, so I know I have a lot of questions. Um, so definitely come check it out. Um, and I'd like to, in, once again, invite everyone to our Monday night big book study. Um, those who wish to thank Marion, just line up down the center aisle. Um, we're going to close with the Lord's Prayer. <clears throat> Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. See you all Monday or next Thursday. Bodies heavy, shoulders thirsty, bodies aching. I am desperately in need of restoration. Can't get it right It doesn't
sounds and oh when you smiling when you smiling When you laughing, wah 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 When you laughing, yes, the sun comes shining through. But when you crying. Sighing, baby, and be happy again. Yes, indeed, I'm smiling.
Here's that song you've been asking me for for a million years. I finally pulled it out the pulled it out the corners of my mind, and um, here you go.
plugging my guitar And I play my songs And people sing along And stomp their feet and raise their arms And here in this moment that we share Nothing could come song is god bless i love you mike chase bye